Good morning, I'm Robin Shannon. As many of you already know, WFUV is a launching point for many students at Fordham hoping to pursue a career in broadcast journalism. While their experience is limited, their talent isn't. On this week's Fordham Conversations, we'll be showcasing some of the stories and interviews these up-and-comers have written and produced. Up first, Connor Tehan examines how people manage to develop friendships despite being separated by oceans and borders. We all have different kinds of friends, those we just have fun with. Our closest friends are the ones that know us the best and lean on us in their time of need. And some old friends we haven't called in years. Can the same be said for cities? In a way, yes. Meet the New Haven Sister Cities, the groups made up of some very dedicated volunteers who work to forge international relationships. From Lyon, Nicaragua to Way, Vietnam, the group has made connections all over the globe. Friends themselves, they meet once a month over coffee in downtown New Haven. Barbara Lamb, the group's president, says it's their hard work that keeps the relationships alive. It's all volunteer run, it's, and it's based on person-to-person -person contact, person-to-person -person relationships, and, and really wanting to make it happen. And it does, most of the time. Sometimes a sister city doesn't return phone calls, and people feel slighted. To make sure that doesn't happen, Bob Parker, New Haven's liaison with Sister City Avignon Friends, says whenever he visits there, he reminds them that they're still buddies. To stop in and say hello or to make a connection of some kind so that we're not forgotten. We've actually done a, a new little sharing of letters between the mayors to kind of repeat our vows, you know, whatever, so that, <laughs> so that uh, we keep ourselves in their minds. And a lot of times that's all it takes, but nothing strengthens a friendship like tough times. Just take Freetown, Sierra Leone, another sister city. After the country was torn apart by civil war, it was in desperate need of many things. New Haven sprung into action. Althea Norcott and Jacqueline Randolph specifically. They organized book drives and other humanitarian efforts because that's what friends do. And it wasn't because of self-gratification. Our lives have been enriched by those experiences as well. So I don't think it's all about just giving. I think it's a mutual, a mutual sharing. Norcott says her work in Africa has expanded her horizons, but through New Haven's sister city, she's gained something she didn't necessarily expect. Good friends close to home, people who share her interests, her passions. It's been wonderful, I think, for all of us to get to know each other. Uh, we may not have had any connection or any interest maybe in finding out about Way or Fula, but we come together as a group once a month and we've developed true friendships. And that's what a sister city relationship is all about. It's as much interpersonal as it is intercontinental. Sister cities build bridges to not only connect cities, but to connect people. I'm Connor Tehan at WFUV News. Up next, Alyssa Tiles sits down with Christine Jansen Salvadore, director of the Foundry at the Gabelli School of Business. They're discussing a small business incubator that launched this year at Fordham University. Can you talk to me a little bit about what an incubator is? <laughs> you bet. So a business incubator is essentially a place um, it's a physical location. It's it's more than that, but it's a place to help new businesses get launched, and it's a, an environment or an ecosystem, if you will, that provides all the support system to help those businesses launch, evolve, and grow. And 
how does it work? Do you just show up? Um, <laughs> do you have to apply? How does that work? Absolutely. There is an application process, and actually it's pretty in-depth. And we want members to come in who are really serious and who are committed and clearly have done their homework and their due diligence. They've validated their idea, their concept. So, again, while they might not be 150% buttoned up, we want to see that they've done a lot of the legwork and they're serious, and then we'll help them get to the next step. So what is that type of legwork? Like, what are you looking for? Well, how much money of their own have they put into the venture? Do you understand your competition? Never, never say you don't have any competition. Um, who's their target market? Do they understand them really intimately um, and can really hone in on specific details about the that, that market or several markets? But there's a lot of research involved. And so it's, it's, and it's not only just a matter of sitting at your desk and Googling information. They need to get out and to talk to potential customers, um, maybe have focus groups or share a prototype with them, discuss pricing information. Would you buy this? How much would you be willing to pay for it? So they should have all that information gathered beforehand, um, which will help them really hone in on their idea and their concept. And then, then they're in much better shape. Now, can you talk a little bit about the significance of having an incubator here for college students? <laughs> like, is that good for them? Is it... What's the best part of having an incubator? A couple things. So I am, everybody who knows me knows this story, that I am on a mission to make the undergraduate entrepreneurship program at Fordham ranked in the top 10. Uh, we were ranked number 83, according to Business Week, in 2011, and then we jumped to 44 last year. So it's great for our rankings, and it's great for students today because, yes, I mean, look at the job market. Um, rather than just hoping and praying that you can get an internship or have a job waiting for you after graduation. I'm always telling my students, perhaps consider, um, it's not about taking a job. Why don't you create a job, okay? Um, create a job for yourself and then also create jobs for other people. So that's what's really gonna get this economy rolling again, right? There's plenty of opportunity there, but I think too often students are of the, the mentality, you know, you go to college and get good grades and you graduate and go work for somebody else. It doesn't have to be that path. So I think their students are really excited to, to realize that there are, are alternative career paths and they may not want to start their own um, company themselves. They might not be the founder of a startup, but they might want to go work at a startup or maybe a nonprofit or, you know, maybe it's a social enterprise. But there's all different roles. There's, there's such an exciting explosion in New York City right now particularly with tech companies. Oh my gosh. So there's tons of opportunity out there to get jobs if they still want to go get a job, but work with a startup for something cool that has a real impact on the economy, on the city, and they can wear 12 different hats um, versus just that one and working on spreadsheets and making runs to Starbucks. So you think the best way out of college uh, to get a job is to create your own? It's an option. It's an alternative. It's not for the, the faint of heart. It's not for everybody. I get that. But if students know, if they have the tools and the mindset to know how to be opportunistic, how to be problem solvers, um, how to be innovative, how to always land on their feet, no matter what's thrown their way, um, whether they find a full-time job or not, or find themselves unemployed in a couple years or laid off, to have certain skills and that entrepreneurial mindset to know that they can always create something, always know how to turn around, create a job for themselves, other people make money. There's something to be said for that. To, to me, if I was a student, I would see this as peace of mind and kind of their own safety net. And can you, I don't know if um, 
since the incubator isn't fully open right now, but can you describe what it's like to be in an incubator and to work in one? <laughs> it's a very good question, actually. Entrepreneurship can be a very lonely road, kind of a solo road, and it doesn't have to be that way. There's a lot of people who start businesses in their basement, in their apartment, and then they, they've got to get out, and so they go to Starbucks, and you see that whole um, population there. There are lots of incubators that have um, sprouted up throughout New York City and throughout the country, but they're often like just collaborative co-working space, which is great. Um, so we want to provide that component. So you want to be around like-minded people who are also creative and innovative. Um, you're looking, you might be looking for partners or folks who have complementary skills, or I need somebody who's really good at marketing, and this person, somebody who's good at numbers. And so you're meeting all these folks in the same space. And, and you're on the same mindset, you know, you're creators, you're innovators. So just being in physical proximity with one another is really supportive and nurturing, okay, knowing you're not alone, and that's why we wanted to create that here at Fordham. So it's a support system, really, that's the key. Um, and you spoke a lot about the entrepreneurship program here at Fordham. Can you give me a little bit more um, information about it? Okay, um, you bet. Right now, the entrepreneurship program is essentially concentration, okay? So there are four classes, um, three required, and then you have the opportunity to take an elective. Um, the three, I just introduced these three um, new classes last fall, so uh, fall of 2011. So there's Exploring Entrepreneurship, which is the introductory course, which, by the way, is open to any students of any college at Fordham, uh, feasibility studies, things like that, but also the resilience piece is helping students understand, well, what's it like to feel like an entrepreneur? So what's it like to fail? Um, what are the challenges? Um, what about risk and all the fears that go along with it? And understanding that, almost the, the emotional part of it, because nobody ever talks about that. <laughs> it's, it's not in a textbook, but it's really important to address that because it is challenging. Um, and then the third course is kind of our capstone course is called Executing the Entrepreneurial Vision. So you can have ideas and ideas and lots of great ideas, but if you don't know how to execute on them, um, it remains an idea. So we really try to help students uh, focus in, yes, I have to write a business plan, but also developing a pitch for the business and continually refining it, going out and talking to potential customers, doing focus studies, lots of research. And throughout the term, they present to a couple different panels of, of experts. And so we poke holes in their ideas and did you try this and how about that? And so that really helps them refine their idea. And then we have electives that change every semester. So we offer courses like sustainable business, social entrepreneurship, and that will largely be, be driven by student you know, their their desires, you know, so what are they asking for? What do they need to know? Um, so it's continuing to evolve. And I, like I said, I am working on developing major, um, which I'd like to introduce next year. Um, and I essentially have all the courses all laid out and what I think will really project us into a top 10 program. So it's in the works. Have you seen anyone come out of this program or um, utilize this program and create their own startup? Yes, I have. I have well. This is remember. This is brand new. So I'm right. going to have to track the the progress and impact of this longitudinally. But I, I definitely have one student, Andrew Archangel, who graduated 2011, and he officially launched his business called True Athlete um, just this summer. So he created this line of sportswear, taking the the best of us on the on the market, and he created his own line, which is awesome. And he's trying to target the the NBA and become their official clothing provider <laughs> in, in within the next five years. 
But so he launched something. I have another student, Josh Salvo, who is actually still a student. The business he launched is called Ready Yeti. And he actually just had his launch party about a month or so ago, which I went to down in Soho. And his passion is skiing. And he's trying to aggregate American-made skis and snowboards and bindings and the best of the best. And how do you kind of select customized skis depending on what type of skier you are. But, you know, these guys are following their passions. So that's that's half of the the ride is finding something that you really love to do and so yes th- things already happen and you'd be amazed what's already happening right here on campus too in in their dorm rooms and stuff. right so lots of activity mm-hmm. great and what got you started in entrepreneurship why are you so <laughs> passionate about it um because i got laid off <laughs> in 2007 and that was not the first time in the last few years and i thought I don't want it was bad job market anyway so there weren't many jobs behind I said okay that's it I'm gonna start my own company and I did I started this research and consulting company called Dankin Research and it was to serve startups particularly women so I created this company and um, I was also working on my doctorate at the time at NYU and I did my study on female entrepreneurs in New York City so I was studying them, I was serving them, and I was one myself. So it kind of all, it all came together. I, it's just weird. It's just the, the moon and the stars aligned, and it was very opportunistic. And it's one of those situations where, okay, we're probably seeing this now as well a couple of years later, that there might not be jobs to be had, so you create one. And that's exactly what I did. So it was great experience. I learned um, the lessons that I learned are priceless, and that has helped prepare me to actually teach other people. So that's that's really what the catalyst was. Great. Thank you so much. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. This week, we're showcasing some of the work WFUV's talented student reporters have produced. We return with Alyssa Tyos on another story she developed. During the 2012 London Olympics, the U.S. women's soccer team dominated the soccer field. Despite winning gold, there isn't a league for women soccer players to play on professionally here in the United States. Alyssa Tyos has more. The goals, the saves, and the heart brought the U.S. women's soccer team to the gold medal podium this summer. U.S. Olympian Carly Lloyd scored two goals to help her team win gold. She says gazing around the stadium at all the fans was unreal. It was awesome. I mean, 80,000 people there watching, not to mention all the people watching on TV uh, for a women's soccer final game. I think that that's a major turning point. A major turning point for the U.S. specifically. U.S. women's soccer players could barely fill their stadiums before the 2011 World Cup. Now, women's soccer players don't have a professional team to play on. Fordham University sociology professor Orit Avishai says women's professional soccer leagues have failed because of money problems. The soccer league completely fell apart um, because of lack of funding, because of lack of, of general interest. Avishai says it's difficult for people to picture women in men's roles, especially in sports. The notion that women are athletes, that women are strong, powerful, interesting players, um, has a lot going against it. Avishai says with society thinking like this, women's sports will not be as popular as men's. 
Fordham senior and Division I soccer player Caitlin Abrams thinks with time, the younger generation is going to help popularize women's soccer. Women's soccer especially is becoming much more prevalent uh, in youth. And I think as these generations that have been playing their entire lives get older, uh, there'll be more support for the uh, league. In the future, there might be support for a professional league, but Fordham soccer coach Ness Salmani says there are other places for Americans to play professionally, if not here in the U.S. There is possibilities uh, to work, to, to play. If not here, you can go in Europe. U.S. Olympian Carly Lloyd says there are U.S. players playing in Sweden, Japan, France, and Germany, but there is still no stable league in the U.S. Fordham sociology professor Orit Avishai says women's sports here in the U.S. have come a long way, though, especially with Title IX. Title IX forced, basically, um, educational institutions to spend equal amounts of money on women's teams and men's teams. Title IX celebrated its 40th anniversary this past summer. This was also the first summer all countries sent women to the Olympics. Carly Lloyd says it was a memorable Olympics for women. Women's sports have come a long way, and you know not only did we win gold medal, but I believe that like 63% of the medals won for the U.S. were women athletes. Although women can win gold medals, it doesn't mean Americans will continue to watch them. Fordham sociology professor Orit Avishai says the Olympics are a once-in-a-four-year event. They happen for two weeks, and then they're over and done with. Avishai says sports fans can be fickle. We as a society decided what games are worth watching. We as a society decided what games are uh, worth investing our time and resources in. Fordham soccer player Caitlin Abrams says it doesn't matter whether you're watching a men's or women's soccer game. They're both interesting to watch. I think women's athletics is just as important as men's and uh, just as exciting. But um, it, it's a different atmosphere. Abrams is hopeful that one day there will be a league, but right now she says we just need a league that's consistent. There's a huge struggle for women to get a professional league, and then now there's the constant struggle for whether the league's existing, whether it's not existing. And even if a league does exist, Abrams says the fans and the funding won't be what matters most. At the end of the day, that's not why we're playing, and that's not why anyone's playing. For Abrams, playing soccer is about heart. U.S. Olympian Carly Lloyd thinks people take notice of the heart women have playing soccer. I think that um, a lot of male athletes, you know, really respect us women and what we do and how we compete and how we're athletic and, and we're powerful and confident. Women's soccer players are on top for now, and maybe with time, they'll get a league of their own that rivals the longevity of men's. I'm Melissa Tayos, WFUV News. Next on this week's Student Showcase... A new garden has popped up on Fordham's Rose Hill campus and is energizing both students and faculty. St. Rose's Garden is classified as a living classroom. It teaches students healthy eating habits and serves as an example of the need for more green space in urban environments. The Fordham Urban Sustainability and Ecosystem Club, or FUSE for short, is behind the garden and a host of other environmental projects on campus. Student reporter Kevin Klein sat down for a one-on-one -on -one interview with Jason Elysio a Ph.D. candidate for FUSE. What are the benefits of the garden? There are lots of benefits to the garden. Um, I mean, first off, it's a social space where people can get together and be outside. It gives me the opportunity to uh, introduce folks that maybe aren't so 
knowledgeable about plants, the opportunity to teach them about plants. You know, I'm a plant biologist. I study plants and I find them fascinating. And I love teaching non-science majors about um, science and plants. And so kids can get out there, undergraduates can get out there, anybody can get out there and learn a bit about some of the things that they're eating normally in their from their refrigerators. Uh, they can actually grow plants, they can pick their tomatoes, they can eat them right off of the vine there. So it's a social space where you can learn in a friendly atmosphere where it's, you know, uh, when I speak about the uh, the science of gardening, the science of farming, the science of plants, we do so in a very casual conversation type tone. So it's so it's really great for that. We're also providing food um, for students, fresh, you know, locally grown, um, delicious food that folks can, after they're volunteering there, they can pick, bring home, and eat, and they can literally see the fruits of their labor right there. So it provides an outdoor living classroom, provides a social space, and it provides an opportunity for myself and for anybody there to begin to have a conversation just like we're having right now a dialogue about food um, and about sustainability. Fordham was founded in 1841 and obviously the, the campus has changed a lot since then. Um, it's a lot more urban now, um, a lot more dense. What sort of problems has this brought to the local ecosystem? Well urbanization which is the conversion of natural landscapes into urban landscapes, typically characterized by increased population density and increased amounts of impervious surfaces such as roads, rooftops, buildings, sidewalks, parking lots, has a plethora of impacts on ecosystems. And you can look at it through a lot of different scales scales. You can think of um, organisms, biodiversity, biodiversity of plants, insects, mammals, all of those things are going to change as a result of urbanization. Um, and you're also going to have, um, of course, um, higher prevalences of diseases. Um, and because you have large amounts of people in an area, you're going to need to supply those people um, with food, for example, in this case. Um, and if there is no more agriculture agriculture in the immediate area, you're going to have to be trucking it in from, uh, transporting it in from outside the city. Transportation uh, there from outside to inside uh, the city results in large amounts of carbon emissions. So then we begin talking on the ecosystem level, and then we see that when you have a urbanization occurring. You also have changes in carbon cycling and in nit uh, nitrogen cycling, nutrient cycles, uh, nutrient cycling, um, and those things are all important for life to be sustained. We also see changes in the hydrological cycles inside urban areas as a result of urbanization. So the difference between Fordham in the 1840s to uh, 170 years later is vast and urbanization has created all sorts of issues. As far as food goes and in the Bronx in particular, 
there's a concept called food deserts. Um, and a food desert is basically an area uh, where people are unable to access um, high-quality um, produce, good quality, nutrient-rich foods, fruits and vegetables. And so typically to get those sorts of things, you need either good food carts around, which have been increasing in the city, or access to good grocery stores, which in the Bronx are much lower density than anywhere else in the city. And there's a number of studies that will explain that. And so if you're not having access to good healthy food, then there's a good chance you're not going to have a healthy population. And so community gardens have an important role in highly urbanized areas, especially in the Bronx, where there are these food deserts. And people can go ahead and grow produce, um, fresh, local, um, delicious produce, grow it, get their hands in the dirt, and actually get some of that. Now, it's not going to solve the problem by any means because, of course, you would need to produce huge amounts of produce in order to meet the needs of these food deserts in the Bronx. But we can only, you know, we can only walk in the right direction. Now, where do you see Fuse going in the future? And what kind of like projects do you have on the back burner? Well, <laughs> I am a PhD student here, and I would like to graduate with my doctorate in the next couple of years. Um, what I'm trying to do is set the groundwork, set the infrastructure for students to take over um, as we move forward. You know, really, it's a, it's a Fordham community thing. It's a university that's really um, prides itself on, you know, the caliber of students that are here. And I can attest to that. There's some really amazing students. I'm sitting across from one right now. Uh, you know, here at Fordham. And I'm trying to set the stage right now, set up St. Rose's Garden, and the sky's the limit from there. You know, we want to make sure there's good leadership in place um, that's going to be able to take these things over and take them into the future. Great. Thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, my pleasure. Captain Planet, he's a hero. Gonna take pollution down to zero. We close this week's Fordham Conversations with a piece from Vididiana Castellan as she follows one man on his back-breaking journey to fund his dream house. Carlos Mendoza Abraham lives under a tent made out of bed sheets next to a graffiti splatter wall near Manhattan's Westside Highway. Drops of sweat drip down his neck as he pushes his only companion, an old and noisy cart, down the street. This is how Carlos begins every night, collecting cans and bottles to earn a living and help his family. All the earnings are sent to my family in Mexico, whether it's two or three hundred dollars. I want to build my house and that's it. Maybe go back. Carlos came to the United States three years ago. He tried working as a delivery man, but that wasn't enough to pay his rent and living expenses. After losing the roof over his head, 
he turned to scavenging. I barely made any money. I was earning between 30 and 40 dollars a week and it wasn't enough to pay for rent. I ended up going from church to church looking for food until someone said, you'll never have money if you continue going around. Get a broom, a garbage bag and start collecting cans and bottles. Collectors who work at least four hours a day can get paid up to $100 by recycling companies. But Carlos says due to the competition, the amount of cans and bottles he finds can vary every night. Roder Fisher, who's also homeless, says he gets paid six cents per bottle and five cents per can. He says some New Yorkers may pass up this opportunity to collect five or six dollars per block, but not him. It is free money. This is this is free money. Free money that people throw away every day. They get charged in the store for a nickel on each one of these bottles they take out the store. They charge them for it. But when they get home, they go home, they drink, they soda, they put it in the trash. Because they don't look at the nickel as to be no money. Truck driver Jerry Melendez with Allstate Recycling waits on the corner of East 104th Street for collectors to sell him their cans and bottles. Okay, you got 20, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. 20, 40, 60, 80, 100, right? Under New York State's bottle law, recycling companies received the nickel deposit plus three and a half cents more. That means a company can make eight and a half cents per bottle. Melendez says it's a win-win for both collectors and the company. Yesterday I had a customer by downtown Manhattan around 5.30 in the morning. He took, he took $600. That's him alone. That's his day. His wife collects Mondays through Fridays. Chinese lady, I've never seen somebody work so hard. She go home every day with at least two, three hundred dollars, every day. After another long night of wandering the dark city streets for hours and sifting through garbage, Carlos admits he's ready to get some sleep but can't. He says it'll take at least three more years of collecting before he'll have enough money to build his dream house in Mexico. I'm Viridiana Castellan, WFUB News. This has been Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon, and I'd like to thank my producer, Alan Kanlick. We'd also like to thank all the students who dedicate their time to work at WFUV. The level of quality work students produce is invaluable to the station, and they serve as the lifeblood for WFUV's news department. Support from listeners like you is giving these aspiring journalists the stepping stones they need for successful careers. We all have a stake in WFUV, and everyone is counting on you to pitch in with your member dollars. Call 877-938-8907 or support us online at WFUV.org. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.